Lord Jesus, you have come, the writer of Hebrews tells us, and that God has spoken through a son. And Lord, we believe that you speak to us even this day by your spirit to this congregation. Would you open these words which the spirit carried along the Apostle Paul in such a way that he wrote the very words of God and his very own words. Lord, we pray that you would strengthen us, give us eyes of faith and ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to us as a church this morning through Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Lord, delight to enrich us and grow us in our appreciation of your word and of its calling upon our lives and of the reality of Christ strengthening and building us up by his spirit. We pray these things in Jesus' name and for the glory and praise of Christ. Amen. If you would open in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to be looking at verses 31 through 32, but I'm going to begin reading in verse 29. After you've opened to that text, if you'd stand with me as we give honor to the reading of God's word. This is God's word. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Amen. Please be seated. Some of you may look at our title today, The Rhythm of Redemption, and think, what in the world does that have to do with this text? I hope by the time we're done today, you will say, ah, it has everything to do with that text. What I want you to begin to think about is, is that too often we can become very um, sterile. We tend to read text very much as propositions. And that's kind of all we give to them. Be kind. Don't do this. Don't do that. Do this. There's a reality that Scripture is not written like that. Scripture has much more fluidity. There's art. There is rhythm. There is a certain flow to the Scriptures that oftentimes if we tend to come to them just reading them as information and facts to be gleaned, we miss that. Literature, of which the Scripture is, is found in various forms and it has a flow to it. The poetry of the Psalms, that Psalm we just read a few minutes ago is our call to worship. Did you hear it? That flow of, I'm hurting, I'm in pain. My needs, my desires have not been fulfilled. Oh, Lord, I cry to you. You see this flow. 
this rhythm. Now where I want you to realize this begins is in Genesis chapter 1. Oftentimes, so much time is spent over debating the age of the earth and how long it took to create things that we miss the whole beauty of Genesis chapter 1. The beauty of Genesis chapter 1 is that God is king and he reigns. And the way he begins his reign is to create. He did it. No other. Him alone. And you begin to see that rhythm. And God saw that all that he had made was good. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. And God saw everything that he had made was good. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God saw everything that he had made and it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. You don't miss that rhythm if you start to let the song of creation enrapture you. And in fact, the reason why we know to some degree there's a rhythm there is because of Revelation chapter 4. Which in Revelation chapter 4, it is all about the creation. Turn there, if you would, with me for a moment. And I want you to see the reality of what happens there. You can go home today and say, our, our pastor took us from Genesis 1 to Revelation. <laughs> there we were, and we've hardly even gotten into the sermon. Look at what it says. After this, I looked and behold, the door standing open in heaven and the first voice which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit and behold, the throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightnings and rumbles, rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. And the first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, and the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around them. And day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. And they cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created now what i want you to understand is is that the rhythm of this is related to the creation they continually say worthy are you worthy are you worthy are you because you created all things you sustain all things you are the creator and sustainer of all of creation and they're praising him and so this is something that we can almost see starts as the creation begins. This anthem begins to be sung in the heavens. You are the creator. You are the great king. You are the one. But Revelation 5 tells us something happens. There's almost this across the record. 
Some of you won't remember what that sounds like because you've never seen a record player. <laughs> but it's kind of like the, the DVD or the CD skipping because it's got some dust or lint on it, on the lens. It doesn't play right. What happens? Sin enters the world. Sin comes in and brings a discordant reality into the song of creation. The rhythm of creation is interrupted. But God is not thwarted. God didn't go, I didn't see this coming. Rather, what we see is in Revelation 5 is that heaven begins to weep because the seals can't be broken. No one is found until the lamb steps forward, the lamb slain, and says, I will break the seals. And all of a sudden, I won't read all of that one to you, but look down because the Lion of Judah has stepped in and look at what it says in verse 9. And they sang a new song. Not the old song of creation. They now sing a new song, a rhythm, if you will, of redemption begins. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And we, then we see that all of heaven begins to break out in verse 12. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. What we see here then is that I may be being a little artsy, but I was a liberal arts major. But the reality is, is that Scripture should not be just read as cold, hard facts, bare information. There's a rhythm. There's this reality that is going on in the Scriptures that we're supposed to get caught up in. And what I want to help you maybe begin to grab hold of as Paul begins to talk to us is, is that as sin breaks in and brings a discordant sound into the garden, God is not long in entering in and bringing back a new song of redemption. And the reality is, is that we begin to see God bringing forth His seed of the woman, His Son. And heaven breaks forth in jubilant song when Christ descends and says, a new song now begins. And we see this rhythm inaugurated. We are called away from the discordant and the dissonant life. We are called to join in the rhythm of redemption in anticipation of the great chorus of glory, of consummation, of Christ's return, and the fullness of salvation being realized. So let's begin to look at how this might be helpful to us as we consider the matter in this text. We see what... Paul has just talked about in verse 30, he says, in whom you were sealed, namely the Holy Spirit of God, for the day of redemption. See, redemption both has its beginning as Christ is crucified, as he's dead, buried, raised again. Redemption is realized. He ascends into heaven, but there's yet, not yet, the fullness of it. Now, he reigns, but we don't experience it in full. We now have redemption, but we don't have it fully. We yet wait for the day of redemption. So we see that we are being called into this 
rhythm of redemption. The first point that I want you to see is the discordant sound of sin. Look at what Paul says here. He shows us sin is discordant. It brings disharmony. It interrupts the reality and the beauty of redemption and its song. Paul provides a list of vices here that we should strive to put away. Let this be put off, he says. Let it be put away from you. Strive to get it off of you, out of your life. Why? Because it creates discord. It brings disharmony. Each one of these things in and of itself does that. I want to look at each one of them very briefly. I don't want to say a whole lot about them, but I do want to say what each of them has on its own. Let all bitterness, that word there means poison. Let all poison be put away from you. The poison that poisons you and the poison that poisons other. Bitterness. Bitterness in your own heart. Bitterness spewed out towards others. You see this reality that what Paul is saying is get the poison out. Deal with the poison because it is eating you. It is destroying you. And it is destroying other people. He then moves on to the next set and says, put rage and anger away. Rage and anger are kind of united together in one, and it basically is burning wrath. Revenge is mine, saith the Lord, I will repay. Christians should not be people who are burning with wrath. We should not be people who rage. We should not be people who are so angry that we almost see red or do see red. So the point here that Paul is saying, put that away from you. Clamor or shouting, that word there that is clamor is actually could also be translated to shout. And the idea there is is that I'm, I'm poisoned. I'm madder than I can imagine. I have so much wrath towards this situation or towards these people. And so I'm just shouting. And the more they try to talk and reason with me, the louder I get until finally I just beat them down with my vocal cords. That's the idea of clamor, is that you just continue to shout. And if they shout back, you shout louder. They shout, you shout louder until you just beat them down. Paul says that's not who we should be. We are not to be people who clamor and shout, and rage, and spew poison. Which then helps us understand how this begins to work itself out in slander. Slander is not merely just saying something about somebody about that might even be true, which defames them. The idea of slander here is that your heart's attitude is to do injury with words. You basically say, this person has hurt me, And I'm going to use my words to get them. Whatever it takes. However I have to twist a sentence or turn a word. I will use it to get them. So you're starting to see that these aren't just outward activities. These are matters of the heart. These are matters of attitude. And the last one then is this. Malice. And that word means a deep desire to do someone harm. My desire, if you have malice within your heart, is to do another person harm. 
Now, it'd be easy to stand up here and give you a nice moral sermon and say, men and women, stop it. Amen, let's go home. Thankfully, that is not the rhythm of redemption. Thankfully, that's not all Paul has to say about this. He says, let this be put away from you. Do you hear the discord? Do you hear the disharmony? Can't you understand that if everybody's standing there, and you've all been in it where you're having a nice conversation with several people, and somebody enters into that conversation, and all of a sudden the conversation starts going down this weird path, and the next thing you know, this person is just so frustrated, so angry, so enraged about something, that whatever harmony was being experienced in that conversation just went down the drain. That's what Paul's talking about. Even the very nature of communication, men and women, is either turned towards the good or turned towards ill because of hard attitudes. If you think about what we talked about several weeks ago, about it's not just enough to measure your words. It's to have an attitude which says, I don't just want to turn my words in certain ways to say things so they don't upset people, but I want my heart's attitude to be reflected in what I say. I want to do good to people. Why? Because God's goodness is being poured out on me, and I want to express the reality of that in other people's lives. So we start to see that Paul is not just talking about getting your outward veneer cleaned up and shiny. This is something that is deeply rooted and requires the work of free grace. And that's what he then begins to point us to in just a moment. What I want you to see then is this. We should hate these things. It should be our attitude to hate these things when they're done in our midst. I didn't say you should hate people. I said you should hate these vices. Now, at the end of the age, you won't be able to separate. People who are outside the faith, who exude these type of attitude, the reality is that they are at war and at enmity with God, and there will be no hope. But in this life, and especially among people who profess faith, who struggle in some of these ways, the attitude is not to be, I wish they'd just get their mess cleaned up. Now, I don't know about any of you, but I feel that way sometimes. And I would imagine some of you do too, but that ought to be our striving not to get caught up in that. But lest we act like we're just supposed to say, well, that's okay, brother. Just keep being out of accord with everybody in our midst. Listen to what Paul says in Titus 3, 9 through 11. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. And then listen to what he says. He singles this out. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. Now, do you think that Paul's pretty serious about people who tend to just always be divisive in the midst of God's people, that they seem to always have a problem, an issue? It's never right. They're never happy. They're always upset. Paul's saying... That's something that's got to be dealt with. You just can't continue to live in that cycle. And if you are hell-bent, and I mean that literally, hell-bent on living that way, Paul says, you got to go. You cannot remain in the people of God because you are destroying 
the reality of redemption. You are destroying the witness. You are destroying the reality of God's grace. You have become a person who is not showing forth grace. You are rather being disruptive and hateful in the community of God. And I think we have to walk that line. Grace, mercy, the reality that we're struggling. But notice the difference between people who are struggling and coming together and say, I keep saying hurtful things and I'm hating it and I don't want to do that. And I need people to come around me and to help me and to pray with me. And see, the community of faith begins to encircle one another. Part of the reason for creating community groups is exactly for that kind of life to be being lived out. There is a vast difference, though, between that kind of person and someone who just sits there and harbors anger and bitterness and irritation continuously. Or somehow thinks they've always got it right on no matter what the theological or ethical issue you raise. They've got it. Everybody else seems to always be lacking. At some point, we have got to love one another enough to say, that can't go on. Can't hear about that anymore. These things are divisive and hurtful, yet we struggle with these things in varying degrees. And thus, Paul's ex- exhortation, notice what he then does. He says, Okay, so now let's talk about what you need to do. It's, these are sins you put off, but there are graces you ought to be putting on. It's not just, Well, get rid of all that bad stuff and you'll be okay. It's be putting off that bad stuff. And be striving to see the realities of grace exemplified in you. The second point that I want to look at is the flow of forgiveness. Look at what he says. He says, be kind to one another and tenderhearted. What's the hallmark of that? Forgiving one another. Be kind and tenderhearted. Forgiving one another. Which means that what Paul can't mean over in Titus, because he's not contradicting himself, is is that you have an attitude that says, oh, you were out of line twice, see ya. Have a nice life. That's not what he's saying. There's obviously a need to recognize people who are truly seeking to break fellowship continuously and people who are struggling. People who are genuinely hating their sin, and seeking to be filled with the grace of God. And this is exactly what what we see. People who know they need forgiveness are exactly the kind of people we want to be around. They know they need it. They know they're struggling. They know. And what they need most of all is not people to stand around and say, well, you know you're a screw-up. Well, you know you're damaged goods. Well, you know you're just nothing but trouble. Also, another thing we don't need to do is always be reminding people of various imperfections that they seem to be harbored with. I'll tell you one of mine. It is, it is, it is not helpful to tell me, Dennis, you know, you like to talk a lot. Thank you. I never, you're the first one to ever tell me that. Wow. Shocking revelation. I'm overwhelmed. But I just use that one to say, and I'm really not that bothered by people pointing that out. I just think it's funny. Because there's almost a sense of, you know, there's more to me than just a person who talks. And what I'm trying to say in using me is not to put the focus on me. It's just I don't want to use anybody else in this room. But we all know of little idiosyncrasies we have. And some of them are a result of sin. And some of them are just idiosyncrasies. 
And what we need to be doing is trying to remind one another where we're going and to be capturing one another in the realities of what God is doing for us, which is exactly what Paul says. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving. Why? Well, because that's what decent Americans do, right? No. This is something supernatural. Decent Americans can't do this apart from Christ. Look at what Paul says. Paul says, as God in Christ forgave you. It all starts with God. What we're really saying is, put off the discordant, disharmonic sounds of sin and put on the character traits, the harmonious realities of your heavenly Father who is forgiving, who is kind and tenderhearted towards you who is long-suffering, who doesn't say, what's okay, Dennis, just keep on screwing up. It's great. I have no problem with that. Or rather, he continues to come into our lives and continues to come into our lives and say, you see who I am? Do you see what I've done? Do you see how I'm for you? Do you see you're out of accord with the harmony of heaven? Do you see that you're not in the rhythm of redemption? And he continues to bring us in. I think about the song, Oh, the Deep, Deep Love of Jesus. And if you've ever listened to that song, there's kind of this, almost the rhythm of that music gets you caught. Oh, the deep, deep. And you kind of feel that flow of that song, not just the words, but the flow of the song. It, catching you up in this ocean. It's supposed to make you feel that. The deep, deep love of Jesus. And men and women, I really believe that's what Paul is talking about here in this passage. Be kind to one another and tender-hearted. When people are around you, do they feel and sense that flow of redemption, that reality that you are a person who knows about what forgiveness is like? Kind of like the woman at the well who runs into the city and says, come and see this man who didn't let me put him off, even though I tried to change the conversation 15 different ways, he continued to pursue me in love, wouldn't let me go. Let's talk about religion. No, we're not. Well, okay, let's talk about religion, worship in spirit and truth. But now back to the point. Go and get your husband. I have no husband. You speak truthfully. I mean, do you understand what Jesus is saying there? You speak truthfully. You're living like a whore. You see, this woman goes into the city and says, this man exposed me for everything I am, but his love is greater than all my sin. Come and meet him. Come and meet this man who exposed me for what I am. See, men and women, that's what the church is supposed to be. A place where people come and say, I'm pursued and pursued and pursued until I finally come and say, you're right. I'm a liar and a thief. I'm willing to prostitute myself to all the world's pleasures. And in the midst of that, you see the God of heaven swoop mightily into your midst and show his love and grace and power towards you and towards your friends and towards your family. That's the flow of redemption. That's 
the flow of forgiveness. God forgives you, you forgive others. God forgives you, you forgive others. God forgives you, you forgive others. You feel that flow. This is not some just do whatever you want to do. It's rather the reality of our sin is great, but his love is greater. His forgiveness is more profound. Its power to plumb the depths of our issues is deep and wide. It also reminds us that there is a now and a not yet reality. I forgive, but I don't forgive the way I ought to. I'm forgiven, but I don't believe it deeply and truly like I ought to. There's a sense in when someone says, I get the gospel. I say, no, you don't. No, you don't get it. You you get it, but you don't. You understand it, sort of, but you sort of don't understand it. Because when you understand it in full, when you understand it completely, you'll be standing looking at Jesus face to face, the full embodiment of the gospel, and you'll be free from sin, and all the realities of heaven will be yours. And so there is this, I understand the gospel, I see the beauty of the gospel, I need to understand it better, I need to know it more. I need to see my Jesus in greater perspective. And one day I will. The veil will be removed and I will see him. And the fullness of what forgiveness means will be right there. And this is the amazing thing, men and women. We are not told that all the stuff we did in the past will be removed from our brains. What we are told is that we will be standing there and know ourselves for what we were. But it won't matter in the paling reality of Christ's forgiveness, of the redemption we will be experiencing and the glory he has held out for us. It's not a removal of the memory, it's rather the ability to see it and to know that we are changed and transformed. And that is no longer a part of us any longer. That's why we yearn for heaven. The last thing I want us to know then is this. The harmony of Christ. Look at how Paul ends this. As God in Christ forgave you. Remember this theme of Ephesians has been in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. This is all happening in Christ. And so the harmony of Christ is the third point. We are forgiven in Christ. Outside of Christ, in view of God's justice, all He can do is destroy. Because that's what His holiness and His justice demand. That's what it demands. Just punishment be made. But in Christ, we get to hear those great words he said to Moses. The Lord, the Lord, compassionate and merciful, keeping covenant even to the thousandth generation of those who love him. And you might think that that last statement where he says, but remembering the sins of the third and the fourth generation seems harsh, but if you see it in contrast to remembering his covenant to a thousand generations, how short and small is it? Remembering the sins to the third and the fourth generation. So you're supposed to see the contrast there of even in bringing judgment, he's merciful. Why? Because he brings in even those who maybe in their past were not believers, but God is determined to bring people from every tribe, nation, and tongue. So even families that have lived in disharmony and discord for years, 
one of person becomes a Christian. And some of you in this midst are the lone Christian in your family. Some of others of you in the, were the lone Christian for years. And through your faithfulness, another came. And then another came. And all of a sudden you had a whole team of people praying and sharing and living it out. Again, that's what the church is supposed to be. That's who we are as God's people. We are to see that in Christ we experience true mercy, genuine love from a committed, long-suffering Heavenly Father. I conclude with two things. One is a story. Augustine told Ambrose, who was the preacher who ultimately had the privilege of seeing Augustine come to faith under his ministry. And Augustine once told Ambrose this. He said, it was not your great preaching or your great teaching that ultimately brought me to conversion. He said, in fact, as a pagan, when I came in, or as a studied and scholarly man, when I came into your midst, I assumed you had nothing really to teach me. I mean, you're a preacher after all. What do you know? I'm a scholar. He said, what ultimately won me was that you were kind to me. You were kind to me. And that gave your preaching a place to be heard. What I want you to hear and what I want us to be praying for in this church is this. Are we kind people? Are we tender-hearted? Do we hurt when we see people struggling in sin? Or do you sit there and go, why don't they get themselves together? Or even worse, you just go, well, good for them. Hope things work out well. Are we kind and tender-hearted, extending forgiveness to one another, just as God in Christ has forgiven us? Let that be our prayer, but let it not just be some prayer we sort of pray. May that be the cry of our hearts, that the reality of the gospel will be pressed more deeply into us so that as we open our mouths, as we move out into our various vocations, what people see is a kind, forgiving, tender-hearted people that they say, I don't know what they've got, but I want some of it. May God make it so in our midst. Amen.